Welcome to Purdue Commercial Agcast, the Purdue University Center for Commercial Agriculture's podcast featuring farm management news and information. I'm your host today, Jim Minter, Director of the Purdue Center for Commercial Agriculture. Joining me today are Nathan Thompson, Assistant Professor of Ag Economics here at Purdue, along with Michael Langemeyer, who's a Professor of Ag Economics and also the Associate Director of the Center for Commercial Agriculture. And we've got a lot of information to cover today. USDA, of course, on Friday released their World Ag Supply Demand Estimates. We've also got uh, some updated information with respect to prospective plantings, and we'll talk about that a little bit here today as well. So let's start off with the update with respect to what was on the WASDE report Friday. Some changes in the U.S. corn balance sheet. First of all, USDA raised the corn export forecast by about 75 million bushels. That raises that up to a total of 2.675 billion bushels. They raised the projected feed usage by 50 million bushels. That pumps that up to 5.7 billion bushels. They also raised the ethanol usage forecast by 25 million bushels, and that puts it up to 4.975 billion bushels. And you put all that together, that reduces the projected carryover from the 2020 crop into the 2021 crop year by 150 million bushels. That puts it down to 1.352 billion bushels. And that's equal to 9.2% of usage. We'll see a little later that that pretty much matches up with what we had back in 2013 as a percentage of usage. Uh, USDA kept the U.S. marketing year average corn price unchanged at 4.30 a bushel. That was a little bit of a surprise given the changes they had with respect to the carryout. Uh, but nevertheless, they did hold that constant. Look at changes in the U.S. soybean balance sheet. They raised the soybean export forecast by 30 million bushels. That pushed it up to 2.28 billion bushels. Although that was an increase, I think the trade was largely expecting a larger increase in soybean exports uh, on the on the report than what USDA revealed. And at the same time, they raised the export forecast. They reduced the seed and residual categories by uh, about 19 million bushels. And the result was a carryover that's still projected to be about 120 million bushels, virtually unchanged from last month. And that's equal to 2.6% of usage. And again, that pretty much matches up with the carryout that we had as a percentage of usage back in 2013. USDA did raise the marketing year soybean price uh, estimate by 10 cents a bushel to $11.25 a bushel, um, and largely a reflection of the fact that we've had such strong soybean prices this past winter. Uh, turning to the world ag supply demand estimates, um, a very small decrease in projected world corn ending stocks. Uh, there was a modest increase in world production and corn usage. Um, no change in the production forecast for Brazil for corn. They did reduce the Argentine forecast by about 1% or 19 million bushels. Uh, China's imports from all sources still forecast at 945 million bushels. That's unchanged from last month. Um, you put all that together, world corn ending stocks forecast is down just a little over 1%, 1.3% compared to the estimate they published in March, and down about 6% compared to what it was last year. Um, on the soybean side, the news was a little more negative. Sizable increase in projected world corn soybean ending stocks coming about primarily because of an increase in production. World production up 50 million bushels. Uh, no change in the Argentina production forecast, but they did raise uh, Brazil's forecast, I think, by 73 million bushels. And that was probably the big negative, I think, on the soybean side, um, maybe a little bit unexpected by a lot of folks. Uh, USDA said that was a reflection of yield reports that were better than, than perhaps expected previously. 
Um, no change in China's soybean import forecast of 3.67 billion bushels. And the bottom line is uh, projected world soybean ending stocks about 115 million bushels higher than they were in the March report. So some of the negativity we've seen with respect to soybean prices, I think since the report's release, probably reflect pretty much that increase in ending stocks on a worldwide basis and the disappointing soybean exports on the US side. Um, looking back at the prospective plantings report, which came out a couple of weeks ago, um, you know, we had 91.1 million acres projected on that report for the uh, prospective plantings here in, in 2021. That was on the low end, actually below the low end of the trades estimate, about 2.3% less than the average trade estimate, um, and actually outside the bounds of anybody's estimate, or at least anybody that was in the survey. Um, if you look at, uh, go ahead to the next slide, Ed. If you look at that on a state-by-state -state basis, uh, huge increases in the northwest part of the Corn Belt, especially the Dakotas. Um, I think the percentage uh, changes there are, are sort of astounding if you look at both North Dakota uh, and to some extent South Dakota. If you look at the central part of the Corn Belt, uh, a lot of year-to-year -year reductions. And Michael, I know you took a little closer look at these state-by-state uh, -state estimates. You might want to comment on those. We've already pointed out the, the big, the big uh, uh, adjustments here were North and South Dakota. Uh, planting intentions were up two million acres in those two states, with with overwhelming, overwhelmingly large part of that uh, due to due to South Dakota. Uh, but th those were the those were the huge changes, and, and in fact, th that acreage now is more consistent with what they planted in 2018. There was quite a bit of prevent plant in 2019 and 2020, uh, and so they're, they're uh, according to the planting intentions, they're intending to plant approximately what they what they planted in 2018. So from that standpoint, those planning intentions actually make some sense, right, Michael? Even though the yes. percentage changes look quite huge. However, uh, Ed, if you bring up that drought monitor, uh, that would actually give us an indication as to what the concern might be. Um, the drought monitor suggests really, really dry conditions in the Dakotas. Um, and I think that has to be a concern. As you look at it, that's roughly 10% of intended U.S. corn acreage coming out of those two states. And going into a very dry spring. And I guess normally I don't get too excited about drought monitors this time of year. However, if you look at the map, what we're really looking at is kind of an extension of the Western US drought kind of extending into the Dakotas. So we're really not talking about drought concerns here in the central part of the Corn Belt. It's on um, the edge of the Corn Belt, the Northwest part of the Corn Belt. Uh, and we've got a large percentage of the US acreage. So I guess what I'm trying to point out is we're going to start off here at the year looking at trend line yields, but with that kind of uh, planting conditions in the Dakotas, it makes you wonder, at least in those states, and then look, if you look closely at that map, it spills over a little bit into uh, northwest Iowa and a little bit in southwest Minnesota. Um, there's certainly some risks there. I won't, I'm not going quite far enough to say we need to pull back the yield estimate uh, based on those conditions, but nevertheless, a, a little bit of a concern there. Um, if you take a look at the next slide, Ed. <clears throat> and it, Ed, I don't know if these slides are popping up full size or not. They're not certainly on my monitor. Um, so if you look at uh, total usage uh, and record production, um, we're looking at total usage that actually could pull those supplies down a little bit. So if you look at the acreage numbers uh, that USDA released in the, on the prospective planning report, 
and multiply that through by a trend line yield estimate, uh, you wind up with a, a pretty significant bump in production up to 15 billion bushels. But um, if you look at the first pass of what usage might be, we could still be pulling down corn ending stocks at the end of the 2021 marketing year, uh, despite the bump in uh, supplies, which is kind of an interesting environment. Uh, suggestive of the idea that we've really got kind of a little longer term uh, strength in this market than, than perhaps some people had been expecting previously. Um, so if you take a look, I think uh, at, it, at the next slide, we've got export shipments. Um, there we are. So corn exports um, in total uh, on a year-to-year -year basis from uh, through the end of March, uh, that's in blue. The red is exports to China. And I guess a couple of things about that chart. One is <clears throat> prior to this year, historically, we really didn't export corn to China. Uh, the second thing is, as you look at it, uh, corn exports up about 84% this year um, relative to last year. And that rise in exports to China accounts for over half of the increase uh, in exports that we're seeing. So the question going forward is going to be, you know, will we continue to see China make some corn purchases? Um, they did buy some corn in March uh, and, and, and actually make some, uh, these are shipments as opposed to sales, but uh, we did ship a significant amount of corn to China during the month of March. I think prior to March uh, through the end of February, our export shipments to China were about 278 million bushels. So we're up to over 350 on this chart. Um, so things still looking pretty good with respect to corn exports. Um, and if you take a look at the next one, those export shipments as a percent of the WASDI forecast are kind of interesting. Uh, so we're at 53% of the updated WASDI forecast so far. If you look at the last five years and average that, that's uh, we're ahead of the five-year average pace. Um, I think the five-year average pace is in the upper 40s in terms of percentages. So um, things are looking pretty positive with respect to the export outlook. Taking a look at the other key usage category, which of course is ethanol, uh, looking at a week by week percent change in, in weekly ethanol production. We're now getting into that time frame when we're starting to make comparisons this year to a week last year that was being impacted by the pandemic. Uh, if you look at the right-hand side of that chart, those are the last couple of weeks, that plus 15% and plus, I think, 45% um, is reflective of that sh that shift in, in environment where we're now comparing to some weeks where production last year was being reduced because of the pandemic. However, if you look at it from a little broader perspective, the ethanol outlook is starting to look positive. Um, as the economy recovers, we're seeing some strength in, in fuel prices. We're seeing uh, that reflected in, in stronger ethanol production numbers and eth ethanol demand. Um, if you look at the daily margins, uh, those margins have, have improved relative to where they were at the beginning of the year. Um, they've weakened a little bit compared to where we were about a month ago, uh, but we're kind of in a trading range on those margins on a variable cost basis. So if you look at returns above variable costs, they've been ranging from the high teens to maybe just below 30 cents uh, per gallon of ethanol produced, which is a big, big change relative to where we were at the beginning of the year and towards the end of last year. So that's probably supportive of ongoing strength in uh, corn basis. And I think Nathan's gonna talk about that a little bit later. 
So if you look at the ending stocks forecast for corn, um, as I indicated earlier, USDA did pull that number down roughly 150 million bushels. Um, and then as you look at where we might be at the end of the 2021 marketing year, uh, even with the rebound in production we're talking about coming out of the acreage numbers uh, and coming out of trend line yields, we could still be looking at a smaller corn carryover coming out of the 2021 marketing year um, than we are coming out of the 2020 marketing year. And again, if you look at that next chart, those corn ending stocks as a percentage of usage, uh, you see that that pretty much matches up uh, where we are uh, with respect to uh, 2013. So those, those ending stocks as a percentage of usage are very close to what we were in 2013 which suggests ongoing strength in, in the corn market. So Nathan, I think you've got uh, some information with us about storage opportunities for corn. Yeah, so you know, just taking a look uh, at what um, current uh, cash bids are for corn here over the remainder of the uh, crop marketing year, uh, and comparing those with some uh, implied kind of break-even prices, uh, meaning uh, what the, the current cash price is today, plus uh, an assumed storage costs and opportunity costs. So if you look at the, the dark gold uh, line there at the bottom, those are the current uh, forward contract corn bids uh, at a, a, a local uh, grain elevator here in central Indiana. And so you can see they're buying grain today. We update, updated this this afternoon uh, for $5.72 uh, a bushel. Uh, that price, uh, declines as you look further into the summer months uh, and that's predominantly uh, a result of kind of the inversion uh, in the futures market currently right the futures market is telling us that it wants corn uh, now and so the other two lines the gray line and the the light lighter gold line on the top there are these kind of implied break-evens and so what it is is uh, the current cash price available to you today to make a sale today plus uh, in on-farm storage costs, which uh, I assume to be one cent per bushel per month. Again, that will vary from farm to farm, but that's just the assumption I use. And then an opportunity cost on not selling that grain and, and paying down some sort of other debt of 6% APR. And again, that would vary from farm to farm. And so for that implied on-farm storage cost, the interpretation there would be that's the, the gray line that you're seeing kind of there in the middle. Uh, if you're going to pass up that $5.72 cash sale today, you know, what, what would you need to get uh, in terms of a cash price if you were going to hold on into May, June, or July? And so just using July as an example, if you're going to pass up that $5.72 today, store the grain on farm, kind of with the assumptions that I've made, you'd have to sell it uh, for $5.84 or more in order to just, you know, cover um, those on-farm storage costs. Uh, so the lighter gray line there, the top line, is kind of the same sort of uh, exercise, but using a commercial storage scenario. And again, I've, I've just assumed four cents per bushel per month in that case. It would obviously vary depending on kind of what the, the arrangement is. But you can see in that case, if you're going to forego, forego that $5.72 uh, cash uh, price today, you need to be uh, selling corn for $5.93 uh, in July to just be uh, just as well off as that 572 today, accounting for that storage cost and opportunity cost. And so really this is just kind of a useful exercise to think about if you still have some corn in storage and you're thinking about you know, what your strategy is gonna be here over the remainder of the crop marketing year, 
Um, you know, what, what is it that you think you're trying to get out of um, the corn that you still have in storage and, and what prices would you need to be looking for in order to do that? And so the two kind of underlying components of, of uh, the cash bids that are in this chart are one, the, the carry in the futures market. So the spreads between um, futures contracts. So the spread between the May and the July futures contract plus uh, basis. And so uh, if you go to the next chart here, yeah. So this is uh, current um, corn basis in central Indiana. Uh, the blue line here um, is the three-year historical um, corn basis for central Indiana. The black line is uh, the current year's basis in central Indiana. And so you can see, you know, we've been running uh, right around that historical average or above. And in, in recent weeks, we really have been kind of, you know, really uh, getting a stronger basis than we would typically see this time of year based on that historical average. And so um, the question is, you know, okay, well, we have stronger basis. We kind of know some of the fundamentals here in terms of the supply situation um, might be indicating, uh, at least from the futures perspective, that, um, you know, we, we, we need price to, to do some work here. But it's interesting that we're seeing basis continue to also increase. And so thinking about kind of Jim showed us the, the uh, historical stocks to use uh, chart, it's useful to look at some comparable years. And so he pointed out 2013 as being a comparable year in terms of stocks to use. Uh, I included some additional years in some basis charts here uh, to kind of give us an idea of maybe what basis could look like as we think about, uh, you know, uh, some sales this summer. And so this chart here we have, uh, I averaged together basis in the 2010, 2011, 2012, and 2013 crop years. And so you can see now that black line, which would be this, again, still this year, 2020, 2021, is running much closer to that average of those four years where we had similar or lower uh, stocks to use for corn. Um, and then you can see as we look out into the summer, uh, a little later into June, July, and August, that we see some opportunities for, for basis to continue to increase. So into that June timeframe, we're looking at, you know, 25 cents over uh, the July futures, out into July and August, we see that basis uh, could be as much as 50 cents over. Uh, something to think about too, as you think about that is, you know, uh, so I was showing you, uh, if you're gonna pass up $5.72 today, you'd need to be selling for, I think it was 590 uh, into the summer months. Um, well, with, with this sort of basis, those sorts of prices might be out there. Now, so what's the risk, right? So there, there's gotta be some, some uh, uh, another side to that coin, and that is, um, we've talked a lot before about uh, forecasting basis into the summer months can be very difficult. There's a lot of uncertainty as we think about the transition from old crop to new crop. We think about uh, weather conditions there early uh, in the planting and growing season. And so there certainly is uh, some, some things uh, to take into consideration as you think about the risk associated with a strategy where you want to continue to hold on to that grain. The other thing is kind of what the circumstances are this year relative to maybe some of those other historical years that I showed on the previous slide. And so 2012 being the real exception with, you know, extreme drought and that just had, you know, exceptional impacts on basis in both uh, the 2011 into the 2012 uh, crop marketing years. So if you take those two years out of that chart, right, so now I'm just looking at uh, 2010 uh, uh, harvest year and 2013 harvest year corn basis. 
And again, you can see that the black line, which is still this year, 2020, 2021, is running right around where basis in those two years was. Again, we see it probably start to diverge a little bit here in the last couple of weeks with some strength relative to what it was in those two years. But to, if you look out there into those summer months, June, July, and August, to give you some perspective of um, uh, what the kind of basis potential might be, again, taking 2012 out, we still see some, some opportunities there for some relatively strong basis. 10 cents or so in that June frame time frame, and then you know as much as 30 cents uh, if you get a little bit later. And so really the point of all this is, is just to say that again, if you still have corn uh, in storage and you're thinking about what you're going to do with it, uh, obviously there could be some opportunities for some, some profitable sales here um, over the remainder of the crop marketing year. You've got to balance that against the risks uh, that you're going to face, uh, especially as it relates to the basis side of things. Um, given that um, we're getting into a time of year where it can be really, really difficult to forecast uh, basis uh, going forward. So Nathan, I, I find those charts really interesting. As you know, I like the, I like the basis charts. So <laughs> it's, it's interesting to me that um, if you maybe back up one chart there, Ed, it, it's really interesting how closely the current year is kind of matching up with that historical uh, set that you've got up there. Those, those, uh, what, four years, I guess. Um, and, and the pattern on both of them is actually quite similar. Just the magnitudes are different, right? So the, sure. the idea is in both cases, there's an opportunity here potentially to see things improve on the basis side. Um, so, very, very interesting. But I think also, as you point out, there is a fair amount of risk there. I think for most of the people watching this, if they have some inventories remaining, it probably is a, a, a modest or small portion of their, their remaining uh, 2020 crop. And uh, so depending on your cash flow situation, it might be a reasonable risk to take uh, because it is shaping up as that kind of a year when we might see that kind of strength and basis over the course of the summer. You've also taken a look at the uh, the ethanol basis, right? Yeah, there we go. Yeah, so this is another really interesting one as you kind of think about what's happened here. And so there's kind of a lot going on. So I want to take just a second and make sure that I describe what we're looking at. So again, this is Indiana ethanol plant basis. So I've taken all of the ethanol plants uh, that I have access to in my database, which I, I don't think is necessarily all of them, but it's most of them. I think there's 14 and I think I have 12 or 13 in there. So it's it's, it's just an uh, Indiana kind of index of ethanol plant basis. So if you're near an ethanol plant, it wouldn't directly line up with this, but it's, it's just giving us an idea of what ethanol basis is doing. And so I have several lines on here that represent different uh, years or timeframes that uh, kind of just give some context to the number. So I'm going to just go through an order here. So the, the blue line on the chart represents the 2015 to 2017 uh, ethanol plant average basis throughout the marketing year. Um, the green line is then the 2018-2019, and I pulled that out because of what happened uh, in the spring of 2019 as it related to really wet planting conditions, not getting uh, a lot of corn planted, we had a lot of prevented plant acres, and because of that, right, the supply situation uh, was a little bit of a problem, and we had ethanol plants uh, really getting wild with some basis bids because they needed corn, and there was an expectation that there was going to be a lack of corn. Uh, in the fall. And so that's that really big uh, uh, peak uh, on the, the uh, June, July, August timeframe there of the green line. So we come out of 2018, 2019 into the 2019, 2020 crop marketing year. And that's the red line. It starts out strong, right above the blue line, which is that kind of historical average. 
And then we get into March of 2020, we have COVID, right? And that has a big impact on travel, ethanol, uh, and, and fuel in general. And so we get this huge decline in uh, ethanol plant basis where they're just not needing a lot of corn, not bidding uh, competitively. Uh, and again, that, that didn't last too long, but we kind of recovered back to more of that uh, three-year average, the blue line there. And had really been tracking along there at the beginning of the 2020-2021 crop marketing year. But what we've seen is since about the beginning of the year, uh, the beginning of 2021, that black line, which is, is this year's ethanol plant basis, it's been pretty steadily increasing, which I think um, based on some of the information that Jim has been showing as it relates to both ethanol production as well as um, the margins at those ethanol plants, is probably not too surprising. And so, you know, that increase right now, ethanol plant basis in Indiana averages about 20 cents over, which would be relatively strong. Again, if you look at the other three lines, the blue line, the green line, and the red line there, they're all below that for this time of year. And so the question is, you know, is that going to continue? Are we going to see ethanol kind of return as a really fundamental source of demand for corn, at least in Indiana? And again, these trends generally hold across other kind of Eastern Corn Belt states. I didn't put those charts in. Uh, but, you know, I think that's the kind of question that everybody has uh, as it relates to kind of the recovery coming out of COVID and, um, you know, getting back to travel and things of that nature. You know, Nathan, I have to say, looking at the production numbers, the basis numbers that you're showing are maybe a little stronger than I would have guessed just based on the production numbers. We are seeing an improvement there, um, but I would not have expected to see the basis being that much stronger than um, historical basis for ethanol plants as what you're showing. So that's really pretty interesting. Um, there's probably some things going on there that we don't fully understand with respect to forward commitments and, and desire to restart plants and fulfill some commitments, et cetera. But uh, it does bode well, uh, again, for strengthened basis over the course of the summer here in the Eastern Corn Belt. Because if we're going to see the kind of strength and basis that you were talking about previously, we're going to need to see some strength in ethanol plant basis, right? For sure. Yeah, I mean, ethanol is such a huge source of demand historically in recent years uh, here in the Eastern Corn Belt. Without that strength, it's going to be difficult to see that, that kind of an improvement. Uh, so you took a look at new crop. Yeah, so we've been talking for a while now about having folks at least be thinking about some new crop opportunities, and I think that continues to be the case. You know, we had seen futures kind of pull back a little bit um, several weeks ago prior to the, the planning intention and the stocks report that came out um, there at the end of March, uh, but we got a huge bump out of those reports with the low planning, the uh, low acreages on, on both, or below expectation acreages on both corn and soybeans. Um, you know, futures are down a little bit this morning, so we're recording this on uh, Monday. Uh, the report came out on Friday, so there was there was a positive reaction on, on Friday, but the markets have pulled back a little bit today. But, you know, so where we sit today on Monday, April 12th, we've got uh, corn futures for new crop, December 21 corn at $4.95. Uh, if I go into the crop basis tool and pull out a uh, a expectation of what basis is going to look like uh, this fall in central Indiana. I, I come up with a basis bid of 15 cents under, uh, which gives us an expected cash price at harvest of $4.80 a bushel. Um, you know, I, if you think about, you know, what, what that means in terms of net farm income and opportunities uh, in terms of locking in some prices, I think that people should definitely be thinking about making some, some moves on, um, 
uh, new crop corn. I mean, the $4.80 is, is uh, well above most people's uh, break even. You know, you don't necessarily need to be thinking about selling everything there. Again, like we've been talking about, the, the supply and demand condition conditions are, are suggesting you know, there could be upward potential for sure. But we know there's always risk in these markets. And so having some grain locked in at these prices uh, is, is definitely something that I would encourage people to be thinking about um, as you think about that new crop. Yeah, Nate, break even on high productivity soil in Indiana in the, in the latest budget that I've crunched is 410. So certainly wow. 80 looks very good compared to that 410. Very attractive. And it's been a while since we've had opportunities to lock prices in like this, right? And so we don't want to let these go by by any means. And if you're worried that you might be passing up an opportunity for significantly higher prices, one, one strategy to consider would be to purchase out of the money calls, um, which would effectively create a synthetic put if you're doing some, for example, some forward contracting or selling futures, either one. Um, so there's some risk management strategies you can pursue that, that might maybe make you a little more comfortable and, and maybe think about that. All right, let's turn our attention to uh, the soybean side a little bit here. So the planted acreage estimate come from, from USDA and the prospective planning report was 87.6 million acres. Uh, that was almost 3% less than the average trade estimate, which was about 90 million acres before the report. A little bit like corn, the, um, I guess in this case, at least based on the survey that I was using here, um, there was one analyst that was had an acreage estimate lower than, than what USDA came in with. But by and large, it was a surprise to almost everybody in the trade. We, almost everybody was expecting a number closer to 90 million acres. Um, again, if you look at the, at the map, um, a huge amount of acreage in the Dakotas. Now, what, what's your take on that, Michael? Another way to think about that is there's a there's a potential four and a half million acre increase in soybeans uh, this year compared to last year. Two million of that 4.5 million acre increase comes from the Dakotas. And so when you put it in additional acres, the Dakotas are really, really important uh, to getting those additional acres. You know, two million out of the 4.5 million. So that's a very large percent. We're also seeing some increases in soybean acres from the planning intentions if these bear out. A 400,000 uh, acre increase in, in Illinois, Iowa, and Minnesota, and 300,000 in Nebraska. And so pretty much across the board, we're seeing increases uh, in soybean acres, but the biggest increases by far uh, were North and South Dakota. And Michael, you've taken a look at the ratio of corn to soybean acreage uh, in the I states in particular. Yeah, certainly the, the ratio of corn to soybean acres is in, in 2021. Again, if these acres bear out, uh, using the planning intentions, it looks like the corn to soybean acre ratio is down in both Iowa, or both in Iowa, Illinois, and Indiana, uh, particularly Iowa and Illinois, uh, down rather substantially, but it's still not quite like it was in 2018. And so another way of saying that is, is Iowa and Illinois still don't have uh, the number of acres that they had in soybeans in 2018. Uh, and so even though they, they're planting more soybeans, uh, you, you go back to 2018, when we had pretty strong export to China, their acreage is still lower than those numbers. And so uh, that's kind of a head scratcher in some ways, uh, but, but certainly that's related to relative profitability in corn and soybeans, which we'll discuss later. So let's take a look at the export numbers, which I think I indicated earlier were maybe a little bit of a disappointment on Friday's report. Um, that was really a lot of the focus coming in is what would USDA do with exports and what would that mean for 
the projected carryover from the 2020 crop marketing year into the 2020 mark, 2021 marketing year. And they did bump up their export forecast by 30 million bushels. So they bumped it up to 2.28 billion bushels versus 2.25. This chart takes a look at uh, USDA's forecast on a month by month basis going back to last June. And I just wanted to kind of show you how those numbers have changed over time. Um, we started off the year with just a forecast of just a touch over 2 billion bushels. Um, we bumped it up several times now, and now we're up to 2.28. Um, I would not be surprised to see that number come up a little bit, you know, even uh, here in this late in the marketing year, but it's going to be interesting to see how that pans out. And the concern there, of course, is that even with the current export forecast, USDA already has us down pretty close to what a lot of people would call pipeline supplies with a projected carryover of about 120 million bushels. If you take a look at the actual exports that have taken place so far, uh, both to all destinations and to China, uh, this is kind of interesting. So those corn exports, excuse me, soybean exports um, are still up about 73% compared to the prior marketing year. But if you look at the data uh, in the aggregate data through the end of March versus the aggregate data through the end of February, it is pretty clear that the export pace slowed down. And I think that's one reason why USDA was reluctant to push their export number up any more than they did. We saw a fairly small increase in shipments to China during the month of March, um, and total exports uh, increased at a slower pace than they had been running previously. On a seasonal basis, you'd kind of expect that because this is the time of year when exports coming out of South America start to dominate the market. Um, but still, there's a little bit of concern there, and I think a lot of concern with respect to the market, with respect to what's going on uh, for the rest of the marketing year. And if you take a look at the next slide, if you look at those cumulative weekly soybean exports here through the end of March, and look at them as a percent of USDA's uh, forecast coming off the WASDE report on Friday, uh, we're at just short of 90%. And those are actual shipments, not sales. Those are shipments to the end of March. So it wouldn't take much with respect to additional shipments here over the remainder of the marketing year to actually go beyond that 2.28 billion bushels that USDA is forecasting. So even though we have seen a slowdown in, with respect to those soybean exports, um, my bias is to think that we could actually exceed the export forecast the USDA has uh, on this most recent WASDE. And that's what the trade's gonna be looking at very closely. So um, all winter long, the trades focus very heavily on what the export numbers are. That's gonna continue to be the case uh, going forward. If you look at the ending stocks estimate, I think I mentioned this earlier, but the ending stocks as a percentage of usage, essentially matching what we saw in the 2013 marketing year at 2.6%. Um, and that chart is kind of interesting. You have to look at that a little bit just to realize what a dramatic change we've seen in those carryover numbers over these last two years. We were at 23% back in 18, came down pretty hard uh, in the 19 marketing year, largely because of a reduction in production, and then come down again here in the 2020 marketing year. And I guess, you know, Michael, as I think about it, going back to that 2018 marketing year, if you'd asked me if I thought we could pull these numbers down this hard, this quickly, I would have said no way, but we certainly have. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd have said it's practically a 0% probability of that happening. One thing that's really interesting about this chart, we have, we have, all have, we have really, really tight uh, soybean stocks and we're still, uh, still don't have the acreage we had back in 2018. If you look at the planning intentions, 
We're a million and a half bushels below what we planted in 2018. So it just tells us how competitive corn really is uh, compared to soybeans. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, Nathan, you've taken a look at storage opportunities for soybeans. I think that's our next one. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, so same kind of story here, looking at uh, cash forward contract soybean bids. Uh, again, this the, the, the bids themselves are, are the, the uh, darker gold line uh, that runs across the bottom there. Um, and so, you know, we're looking at a little over $14 for cash bids today, and really not, not much different than that throughout the remainder of the uh, the crop marketing year, even with some declines in those cash bids, again, coming from uh, kind of the inversion there in the futures market. Uh, if you compare that with kind of these implied break-evens for both an on-farm uh, and a commercial storage scenario, you can see that those kind of implied break-evens are above uh, those uh, current uh, forward contract bids. So if you were going to store on-farm, again, I'm assuming one cent per bushel per month and on-farm storage cost. 6% APR for your opportunity cost. If you're gonna forego that $14.07 bid today, you need to be selling uh, soybeans for $14.31 into July. Um, again, for a commercial storage scenario, similar framework, but instead of a, a one cent per bushel per month on-farm storage costs, I use a four cent per bushel per month commercial storage cost. So again, if you forego that $14.07 uh, cash bid today, you need to be selling uh, soybeans for fourteen dollars and forty cents uh, into into July, and so again, you know, for for those folks that still have some soybeans in storage, um, you know, you want to be thinking about you know exactly what it is you're looking for as you think about um, making some sales here over the next couple of months. Uh, again, underlying these are both uh, the, the carry and the futures market and basis, and so if we take a look at basis here. Uh, for soybeans in central Indiana, we've had strong soybean basis uh, throughout the, the entire crop marketing year this year. Um, and, and again, we've seen recent kind of increasing strength in basis with the, the, the current year's basis really um, uh, getting further away from that historical two-year average that we use for soybeans. And so again, trying to maybe give some context to um, some sales that you might be thinking about here over the remainder of the, the crop marketing year into the summer months is comparing uh, soybean basis in a similar uh, stocks to use year um, with what's going on this year. And, and similar to what we saw for corn, uh, it's really kind of striking how well this year's uh, soybean basis lines up with here I'm comparing just to the 2013-2014 crop marketing year. Uh, and you know, to this point in the year, that, that, those two um, uh, uh, years, the basis in those two years has, has lined up extremely well. And so as you look forward and think about, all right, well, you know, what could that mean for, for basis this summer? And again, I, I stress the word could, there, there's a lot of things that could impact this, but what could that mean in terms of basis potential? You know, as you look into the May, June, July, or May, June timeframe, you know, we could see basis, uh, or we did see basis in 2013 of, you know, 35 cents over or so. So that's, you know, roughly 10, 15 cents higher than what we're currently seeing in terms of soybean basis. Um, but I think what gets a lot of people's attention is what you see even later than that. And so again, as you look later out into the summer months, we see you know a plateau there around 75 cents over, and you get way out there into August, you know we're looking at a dollar and 65 cent basis. And so again, you know I, I'm not saying that those numbers are going to happen. I, 
they're certainly possible given where we're at from a, a stocks to use standpoint. Um, but you know, as you're thinking about making sales on, on soybeans that you still have uh, stored, you know, you, you got to be thinking about what it is you're looking for. Would you start with this framework of, all right, well, what kind of sales would I have to make if I'm going to hang on uh, and, and forego what the current cash prices are? And I think a big part of, of building an expectation of what you think prices are going to be or your expectations and basis. And this would be a good place to start as you think about uh, what's going on. And again, I think it gets back to what we said with corn. You know, it, it, what you have left is probably a relatively small portion of your production. And so if you have the ability to bear some risk and are willing to take some risk, right, there could be some some pretty favorable soybean pricing opportunities this summer, I think. Yeah, it's a good point, uh, Nathan, you know, with respect to the risk and the fact that, you know, I think if you look at not only this chart, but actually some of the research you've done on soybean marketing strategies, it would suggest that there's a reasonable chance of having a good return, um, even though the futures market doesn't necessarily suggest you should be hanging on that far, right? So, um, interesting perspective as we go forward. So you've taken a look at new crop like you did on corn. Yeah, same kind of thing. Just looking at where uh, futures are currently uh, for new crop soybeans. So looking at that November 21 soybean futures contract uh, this afternoon is at about $12.51. Again, using the crop basis tool to build uh, uh, an expectation of, of what I think basis is going to be in the fall. Uh, so uh, in central Indiana, I have that at 30 cents under. Uh, and so that 1251 minus the 30 cent basis is uh, a cash price sale uh, for harvest delivery of, of $12.21. Uh, and so again, you know, if you think about where folks break evens are on, on soybeans, I think we're still, you know, considerably above break even. So we have some profitable opportunities here. Again, you know, uh, given the stocks to use um, situation, given what, what USDA told us in the planning intentions report a couple of weeks ago, there's certainly upside on soybean markets, um, but there's also risk uh, to be had. And so, you know, uh, having some grain price uh, at these prices is, is going to lock in numbers that are in the black. Um, but again, you know, I, I'm not necessarily advocating that anybody go out and sell everything uh, today because I, I think that there, there definitely is upside potential to be had here. Yeah, though these prices are lower than what we're currently seeing. Uh, just to put it in perspective here, uh, the break even on high productivity soil right now is, is still only ten dollars and ten dollars a bushel, and so they certainly these 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 the prices you're showing on the on the slide here are much much higher than that. And just to reiterate, Michael, when you say break even, those are full cost, right? Yes, that's covering all economic costs, including opportunity costs on land and labor. Yeah, so those are some pretty positive returns. Well, that brings us up to looking at your net farm income estimates, Michael. Yeah, I have a couple different slides on this. The, the first slide shows just how good 2021 uh, is uh, compared to uh, recent years. Uh, what I've done is I've looked at, at uh, 2007 to 2021 uh, net return net farm income per acre. And, and, and 2021, uh, if, if again, if prices hold to what we think they're going to be this fall, uh, is the best year since 2012. So even better than 2013 and certainly above uh, the 2007 uh, to 2021 average. Uh, if we look at the next chart, uh, what's really important to note about uh, the strong net farm income per acre in 2021 is all of it's coming from the market uh, and none of it's coming from government payments. Certainly government payments have been extremely instrumental in explaining uh, you know, fairly strong uh, a net farm income per acre 
uh, in 2020, but also helped immensely uh, in 2018 and 2019. Uh, in 2021, we're not expecting any government payments. Uh, there is some government payments that are going to accrue uh, to the 20 crop that are going to occur in 2021, but the 21 crop, we're not expecting any government payments. The, the strong net farm income in 2021, let me explain that a little bit, what's going on there. Certainly, it's a result of, of relatively strong prices compared to break-evens uh, in the fall of 2021, but also those that kept some of their crop, um, you know, some of their 2020 crop and carried it over into 2021 received very good prices for the for the 20 crop. And so you combine that uh, with relatively strong prices in, in the fall of 2021, and you're looking at a pretty good year. Uh, looking at the relationship between corn and soybeans, this has been changing a little bit depending on the week you look at it. Uh, the, the relative strength in corn prices recently have made corn more competitive. We're still looking at an advantage in Indiana on, on high productivity soil of about $25 for soybeans, uh, but that was as high as $50 to $75, depending on the week you, you, you were looking at uh, several weeks ago. And so certainly co corn looks very competitive uh, right now uh, compared to soybeans. Uh, taking a little closer look at that, uh, when I say corn is more competitive, I wouldn't say continuous corn is competitive in Indiana. In fact, I think it's the opposite. Uh, continuous corn still does not look as good as rotation soybeans uh, when you make that comparison. So I would discourage people uh, from, from necessarily uh, uh, growing corn continuously. There, there'll be some situations where that, uh, where that pans out in Indiana, uh, certainly on some uh, really high productivity soil, that might be the case. Uh, but in general, that uh, continuous corn uh, does not look as competitive as rotation soybeans uh, in Indiana. I think when you go into Iowa and Nebraska, certainly when you go into the western uh, part of the Corn Belt, you're going to see quite a bit of continuous corn. You always do. Uh, but when you look at Indiana, uh, Indiana in terms of planting intentions was 5.8 million acres of soybeans and 5.2 million acres of, of, of corn. And so obviously that doesn't translate into a lot of continuous corn. Uh, looking at the uh, uh, the situation between rotation soybeans and second year soybeans, uh, it's about a wash. Uh, you know, uh, uh, rotation corn uh, is very competitive uh, compared to second year soybeans, and this is quite a bit different uh, than what we saw back in 17 and 18, where second year soybeans looked very attractive uh, compared to rotation corn. So we're certainly in a different situation. Uh, than we were were in 17 and 18, where we had a, uh, we had quite a bit of uh, soybeans planted in Indiana and across the Corn Belt, and, and it helps explain why uh, possibly in the, in the Eastern Corn Belt, but also uh, in Iowa and Illinois, where we're not seeing more soybeans. Corn is more competitive uh, than what it was was back in 17 and 18, and so it's not real surprising uh, that we're not expecting quite as much uh, soybean acreage uh, across the Corn Belt uh, that we saw in in, two, in 2018. So, Michael, I have to ask a question here, and that is, um, you know, one of the things that's happened here over the course of the winter is the production costs have gone up for corn, particularly uh, fertilizer and, and nitrogen, especially. And did you reflect that in your budgets? That's definitely reflected in there. Uh, corn would actually be more profitable in soybeans if fertilizer prices wouldn't have not would have not went up. I mean, we're just seeing some really strong uh, corn prices corn prices right now, uh, and I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, Break-even prices on corn have increased about 25 to 30 cents per bushel just in the last few weeks uh, due to the high fertilizer prices. It's even affected uh, soybeans, obviously, because of higher phosphorus prices in particular. Uh, and so it's also increased the break-even for soybeans, but not near as much 
uh, as course as, as it increased the break-even price for corn. But yes, I factored that in. Okay. Uh, another thing that's really interesting to me is that it's a very strong potential for economic profit in 2021, uh, looking at our, our, our Purdue crop cost uh, uh, and return guide. We're looking at a, a potential economic profit on high productivity soil for both corn and soybeans about a, of about $150 per acre. Uh, it's just unprecedented to see uh, you know that much economic profit on high productivity soil. And the main reason I want to talk about this is what this means about upward pressure on cash rents and land values. Certainly, if if, if someone expected these high economic profit uh, to continue for for two or three years in a row, that's going to cause some uh, uh, tremendous uh, uh, upward pressure uh, on on cash rents and land values. Uh, having said that, that's not my expectation. I expect some uh, pretty strong uh, net return to land uh, for for uh, 2020, 2021, and possibly 2022. And then I, if, if it drops back down uh, to more of a normal uh, net return to land, which is about $250 uh, compared to where we're currently at, $310, $320, $330 for, for 2020, if it comes back down to that $250 per acre, uh, that that, pretty, that that mitigates the upward pressure on cash rent. Uh, but, but given the fact that 2020 and 2021 are seeing a, a very strong net return to land, we're going to see some upward pressure, at least for the next year, uh, in cash rent and land values. And I, and I would not be surprised at all uh, if, if cash rents are up maybe 5% this year and maybe 5% in 2022. And then if if, uh, if returns uh, come back down uh, to that $250 uh, per acre um, uh, you know, you know, long-term average, then we would see those cash rents come back down uh, to that $250. But certainly... Uh, the returns we're seeing right now for, for 2020, 2021, and possibly 2022 is going to cause some upward pressure on cash rents and land values for at least the next couple of years. So, Michael, as you think about that, uh, you know, one of the things that perhaps happened for, with respect to the 2021 crop year is that the bump in profitability occurred late enough in 2020 and, and then spilling over into the winter of 2021 but a lot of those cash rent negotiations had already taken place, right? Yeah, and so the the, the upward pressure at twenty one is not near as much, and so five percent would probably be a, a pretty high. Uh, but certainly, the upward pressure is probably going to be mostly felt in twenty twenty two, because at that time they've already seen that that twenty returns being strong uh, and, and twenty one returns potentially being strong, and so when negotiations are taking place August and September, you're going to have two pretty good years. Uh, you know, that, that, that are going to uh, create some upward pressure for 22, uh, uh, 22 cash rents. So I think one of the things that this points out is the uh, advantage potentially of some sort of a flexible rental arrangement, something that perhaps keys off of uh, either returns or prices. Um, there's a lot of ways to do that. I know a lot of people don't like to get into more traditional type share crop arrangements uh, but something that gives you some flexibility here to accommodate these pretty dramatic shifts in profitability we've seen over a relatively short span of time. Yeah, that's a very good point. I think this is an ideal time uh, to look at flex rent because it, it establishes a base that's, that, that's not quite as high as what you're currently seeing, but it also gives that landlord some, some upward potential. Uh, if, if the returns really are high, if we really do see some strong economic profit, they'll share that economic profit. 
And so it's and so it's a way to try to capture those higher returns without without necessarily bumping up cash rents five to ten percent. Um, and, and so and so it makes a lot of sense in today's environment uh, to look at some kind of flex rent arrangement. Yeah, I mean, from a from a renter from a tenant standpoint, it gives you an opportunity to reflect the improvement in returns that's taken place without locking that in long-term because of the uncertainty about what returns might look like two or three years from now. Uh, yeah, FlexRent really to... does combine a couple, of the, a couple of the very good features from both a cash rent, there's a fixed portion, usually that's 90% or so uh, is, is the base cash rent, but it also captures the upside potential in a share rent with, with no downside. Uh, because you know, and share rent, of course, that that return could be well below uh, that ninety percent of, of of base cash rent. Well, that's just completely chopped off uh, in the flex cash rent. Uh, you stay with at least ninety percent of the of the of the market cash rent, so that downside risk is eliminated. But you capture the upside, at least some of the upside that you would see in a share rent relationship. And so, really, in many ways, it combines uh, the best the best of both worlds of both a cash rent and a share rent lease. Yeah, good point. Now, obviously, there is a downside there. There is some things that have to be defined, uh, and, and we've got more information on on the center's uh, center's website related to this. Uh, you have to be able to uh, define uh, what 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 the, what a bonus means. You know, when did when do you trigger bonus? And so that's sometimes difficult to do. It's also sometimes difficult uh, to define the price. Uh, you know, what price are you talking about? Where Where is the price that you're talking about? Is it a specific location? Is it an ethanol plant? Uh, is it a particular month? And so there is some things you have to define with the flex rent, but this is a good time uh, to think about uh, entering a flex rent uh, relationship uh, with, with an operator and a landlord. Yeah, that's a good point, Michael. And I guess one of the things that I've run into, I suspect you have as well, a lot of times people like to use the crop insurance price as the price that they're going to, if they're going to use price as part of that uh, uh, flex agreement. And that's what a publicly available price, one that everybody, uh, well, almost everybody looks at pretty hard. So I always throw that out as a possibility, uh, as a potential price. And then if they want to use something, uh, you know, something that's more cash oriented, they can do that. But, uh, uh, but certainly, look, you know, consider the crop insurance price because it is, it is public, Publicized, it, it, it's clear. It's clear on how it's how it's defined, and so uh, it eliminates some of the amb ambiguity uh, in in, in uh, coming up with a price. Yeah, good point. Well, that wraps up our discussion for today. And with that, I want to thank you for joining us. And on behalf of my colleagues, I'm Jim Minter on behalf of the Purdue Center for Commercial Agriculture. 